0: This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be the Amazon of
3: retail,
4: of e-commerce.
3: The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix.
5: In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries.
4: Capital return is the key story for the U.S. bank. The telcos naturally are moving into
5: content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets.
0: Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide.
2: And today, we're going to take a look at the impact of a slew of digital taxes on U.S. tax companies.
0: Plus, Tesla weighs on Kathy Wood's high-flying ETF.
2: But first, let's turn to the big banks. We finally have all of them out. Earnings season officially kicks off. Let's bring in Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence, Senior Banking Analyst. All right, Allison. Uh, aside from the big takeaway that Morgan and Stanley crushed it. What, what was your big theme throughout earnings season?
4: Market share, cost cutting—these are the two levers that we're looking for in order to offset the difficult rate environment. And we got that at a number of banks, um, some more than others. So, um, Morgan Stanley was one of those. They're gaining share in the equities business. There's been a pullback from a large German competitor there. <laughs> I was going to um, say, how
2: much can we say Deutsche Bank? bank.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so, and and Morgan Stanley, um, you know, they specifically referred to getting prime balances uh, in the for the U.S. Banks from Europe, but Bank America also benefiting in prime. Goldman benefiting in, in prime as well. Uh, also the cash equities business. We also saw evidence at J.P. Morgan, who uh, perhaps had the strongest quarter there. Uh, generating the strongest profitability overall uh, they're on target to meet their goals Morgan Stanley is on target to meet their goals uh, Citigroup is is the one bank that is going to come close to its goal but we do see risk to its targets next year uh, they are doing uh, all they can and will do all they can in the words of uh, their CEO to meet those targets um, but with the revenue pressure um, perhaps not as many levers to pull on the cost side and so I think that's Sort of brings us to one of the, the bigger themes that we are seeing long term, and that is that these big banks are benefiting from market share not on the global, not just on the global front, but also in their home markets in terms of loans and deposit growths. And one of the more interesting things we saw this quarter was sort of an uptick in mobile growth. And so that is um, good for revenue, but it's also good for the cost side. So give us a sense
0: uh, how the returns are for these big global investment banks. I guess it's return on tangible equity that you look at. Give us a sense of how these returns are. Are they getting better? Or are they under pressure?
4: They are getting better, and they are under pressure. Okay. So you're See? right. So uh, yes. <laughs> I mean it's tough to say that again this quarter when you look at uh, JP Morgan's 18% uh, return on tangible common equity but uh, as as I said we are sort of facing uh, a more negative interest rate outlook that doesn't necessarily mean negative rates we don't think that's going to happen here in the yes in the US but obviously as we've learned over time anything is possible um, but we do have the headwinds of rates where they are now but we also have sort of these looming geopolitical risks and I think you know that's the question That's tough to answer as we move forward. And that's why we are looking for things uh, like the cost cutting, like the market share games to offset that.
2: Can we talk about Goldman for a second? What is Goldman? So, like, I know what Citi and JP Morgan are. I mean, we know what Morgan Stanley is molded into. They have clear strategies and they're winning on certain strategies. Goldman's kind of stuck in the middle. Like, what does it want to be? And can it actually be that thing? I feel like this is a really ex- existential, like Goldman. What <laughs> is it? But I know Goldman?
4: Alice has got it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that really is uh, the pivotal question. And I think Goldman is going to be one of the more interesting banks uh, to watch next year because if you look back historically, that was generally the easiest question to answer. Mm -hmm. What is Goldman? They are a leader in the institutional business. They have been more committed to that than others over the long term. We've seen Morgan Stanley go more towards uh, the wealth route. We have these banks that have these huge retail franchises. Goldman has really stuck to institutional. However, over the past few years, we've seen this build out on the consumer side. Uh, We've seen um, different efforts that they have within their institutional business. And we have a new CEO. And that new new CEO is making changes. We're going to get an update for them in January, and we're going to see, will there be a pivot or bigger changes uh, for that bank?
0: So when you and bank executives say cost cuts, as a former Wall Street or myself, I think job cuts. Uh, so give us a sense of headcount at some of these big banks, and where do you think it's going?
4: So I think we do always think headcount. And I think that has been sort of one of the areas that Citigroup has talked about. We're actually hearing a lot more about that from uh, some of the Europeans. And actually, that is where a lot of the cuts have uh, have been. Because if you look at where profitability is, uh, across the regions, Europe really is the most challenged. Asia still has opportunity for long term uh, growth. So Europe is, is sort of where we're seeing the the cuts. But when where the banks have been, I think, really successful have been on the technology side. So I talked a little bit mm. about mobile. When you think about the fact that you know doing a deposit on your phone, which hopefully we all have experience. Yes. <laughs> I know, I know, I love doing that. Uh, that that's pennies on the dollar that mm. compared to someone coming into a branch. So when you think about sort of the very strong growth that we've had on that front, and then we think about things going paperless, other initiatives, um, that really is sort of the bigger initiative, helping not just uh, the cost side, but also market share. Um, and then just circling back to your qu- question on staffing, I think the one thing that we're going to be watching in the next quarter or so is what happens on the equity side of things. These MIFID two changes, they came into effect in January. Uh, this is European regulation. However, it really is sort of catalyzing change globally. And a lot of the managements at that time, uh, JP Morgan, one of them saying, we're going to sit back, we're not going to going to be too quick to act. We're going to see how things evolve. The IPO market, a great source of fees that also helps secondary trading, has helped to support equity fees, but also equity trading until now. With some questions around that, do we start to see some of the MIFID-related cuts come hmm. through.
2: All right, Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence, Senior Banking Analyst. So, we want to talk about an ETF that's done really well and then now could have an Achilles heel, and the Achilles heel name is Tesla. Let's bring in our ETF expert from Bloomberg Intelligence, Eric Balchunas. So, basically, what we're talking about is ARC Innovation ETF. First of all, what's in it, and how does it relate to Tesla?
3: So, the ARC Innovation ETF um, really is a fascinating uh, specimen, uh, especially for us analysts, because all the money is going to cheap, passive rules-based, right? That's the big trend. This is a fund that's more expensive, 75 basis points is the cost. It's discretionary stock picking inside an ETF, and it's launched by an indie issuer, has no real distribution help, and it is uh, now over a billion dollars, and the whole firm is uh, about $2.5 billion. So uh, it's run by Kathy Wood. So this ETF has overcome um, really three major hurdles to be successful, and part of it is the returns were so good. Uh, her fund is still uh, doubling the returns of the s and p. So we watch it and we praised it, but you have to sort of look at it as it goes forward because one of the big risks with this is it's very high octane, very concentrated uh, fund, and those tend to you know fly high but then crash. So we're watching it. And one thing that's uh, becoming a problem for this fund that's just uh, consistently beat the market is Tesla. Um, Kathy Wood really is uh, a Tesla bull. Um, She gets beat up relentlessly on Twitter. It's actually kind of um, brutal if you look at some of the tweets. Most Tesla bulls do. But um, it's interesting. Over the past year, her Tesla allocation in ARKK, which is the innovation ETF that's her flagship, has gone from 8% to about 13%. So on one hand, she's kind of really tying herself to Tesla. She's a believer. But on the other, this is the kind of conviction – that you rarely see, and we think her conviction and boldness is uh, what you want because a lot of big active managers now are, are more about asset retention than going for the gold. And so this really is on brand for her. But again, if Tesla uh, continues to slide, it could really bring this fund down. It just uh, uh, unfortunately saw a death cross. So um, again, it's still up 11%, but it's underperforming the S&P this year. So.
0: You know, Give us a sense for this ETF. Is is it just Tesla or is it primarily Tesla? What's in this ETF? Tesla
3: is the top holding by far at 13%. Then we've got Square, Illumina. Um, you've got companies like, I mean, some I haven't heard of, Editus Medicine. There's a lot of biotech in here. It's really her theme is disruption. She looks for firms that are just severely disrupting their industries. And you end up getting a decent chunk of consumer discretionary. Decent chunk of healthcare and tech. You know, she came out with this uh, five, you know, five six years ago, and at the time it was novel. Now um, everyone from BlackRock to Goldman has followed her with innovation type ETFs. She has a whole lineup. Uh, one is the uh, next generation of the web. Another one is genomic revolution, uh, fintech. So she was kind of a pioneer on it. Um, but yeah, that's what's in it, and it's again high octane, high growth. But um, she launched it because she felt that you needed an active hand because uh, it goes across sectors, and she wanted to be able to, um, you know, make decisions. And But at the same time, she's transparent, which is also unusual. She'll show her trades every day on her website hmm. and the holdings every day.
2: So at what point do these kind of ETFs stop working? Like, what's the macro Well, for
3: her, yeah, yeah I mean, for, look, I mean, when it comes to high active share active, uh, it's usually going to come down to performance. Now she's underperforming the S and P this year, and still has taken in three hundred million dollars. But the flows have definitely been muted. So I would say if this fund starts to, you know, let's say there's a huge growth sell-off, right? Next year, growth stocks are down twenty percent. Um, yeah, she could have some problems. I mean, this is the sort of live by the sword, die by the sword type active. However, in in a world where everything can be indexed, pretty much. She is doing things you can't really index, and um, I still think she'll have an audience. When you, I, I've gone to some events where uh, she's spoken or that they've hosted, and I've talked to her investors, and they believe in her. So I do think she has uh, that going for her, but uh, largely with ETFs that aren't cheap beta, uh, the flows tend to go with performance. So uh, you'll see money come out if it underperforms.
0: That's kind of where I want it to go, given that this thing may be rolling over here. What's the status been with the flows into this uh, ETF.
3: So it's still have positive on the year but the last uh, 4 weeks have seen outflows. Not tremendously bad but um you know this ETF for 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 a while was seeing nothing but inflows. And you know you guys have been around you know what happens with a hot hand, right? You you have a couple of good years, the flows come in. You have a couple of bad years, but here's the thing, after this call, couple of bad years um only about half the money typically leaves a high flyer when they go on hard times. I don't know. People just forget they own it or they were committed investors. I don't know. But we've seen this happen in other areas. Currency has ETFs had like a couple good years where they've got all this money. Only about half of the money left. Um, so over and over, uh, it's happening with robotics now. High flying type strategies. The good news is she's now known as the sort of like disruptive active manager. And I think she'll always be that. And she'll probably survive a downturn. We asked her on our podcast, we interviewed her about these stocks and a downturn, and she claims that these stocks are the ones that rebound the fastest and quickest in an upturn because of some of their potential. So, she says they do get hit hardest in the early days of a downturn, but they rebound the fastest, she pointed to Amazon, which returned something like 15% a quarter uh, in 2009.
2: Like how we said, like you guys been around.
3: Yes. I, thanks. <laughs>
2: thanks for that. Uh, but um, so, but you mentioned that other. Uh, I was but... talking about
3: Paul. Yes.
2: <laughs> so Paul. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that there are other institutions like BlackRock getting these kinds of ETFs. So how hard is it to get into this kind of thing, and and what's the low hanging fruit, and can she kind of fend off the competition?
3: Yeah, good question. I mean, BlackRock comes in, and uh, they're just. A distribution machine so they'll probably peel some investors away but again BlackRock's doing it through index like a like an index rules based product Kathy is the face and the more she becomes the face the more it's solidified this is an active fund so she will always have that over them is that it's Cathy's fund it's active but you know Global X BlackRock they're getting some money into some of these Global X's FinTech ETF for example has about 300 million um BlackRock launched a bunch of uh like sort of cross sector or new type sector ETFs that were loosely modeled on the ARC funds. Those have um done okay. Um but when you're first to market it helps a lot, even if you're small. And I, I like that. I think it's you know, you should be rewarded and BlackRock shouldn't crush everybody's hopes and dreams. Um and so she's probably gonna be okay uh because she branded herself early. The ETFs get a little liquidity going for them, and they're really hard to it's really hard to push that out. Um, even if you get undercut by a BlackRock, so it's it's easy to launch one of these ETFs. It's just it's harder to find success, yep. and that's what makes her so astonishing. Is that she did it high cost, discretionary active, um, and as an independent issuer with really n- no distribution to speak of.
0: Eric Bouchounis, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts. Eric is the ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence.
2: So there's some really big predictions when it comes to autonomous vehicles. There's lots of levels that you need to yep. do to get it there until you can basically not be in your car and the car drives on its own.
0: <laughs> I'm not buying that. But anyway, for more, we're pleased to welcome Anand Srinivasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So Anand, give us a sense as the auto industry moves towards driverless, I don't know, Autonomous driving, electric vehicles. Obviously, a big, big bet on technology. How are you viewing kind of the potential
5: winners from the tech sector there? Look, I mean, the semiconductor industry, yeah, first question is why is the semiconductor analyst talking about self-driving cars? <laughs> and the answer to that is this is a, an incredible growth area, an incredible uh, margin area for, uh, for chip makers, and this is one of the key engines by which self-driving cars will be made, uh, no pun intended. So right now, it's about 8 to 9% of the business, and there's very little self-driving technology in the car. And to give you an example, if you look at a level 2 Autonomous uh, driving car, which means that it can do a few of the things some of the time in some instances. Okay, so depending on levels of. uh, You, You
2: have to stay awake.
5: You have to like, stay awake. Like, You're completely like you in control. You can't be <laughs>
2: drinking, and you can't be napping or doing other stuff. Just that's to be totally also, clear.
5: Yes, and okay. automatically, many New Jersey drivers are automatically ruled out exactly. because of those <laughs> driving skills. But that's a separate issue. But the point is, level zero being no self-driving capability whatsoever. Level five being. Uh, it can do all of the things, all of the time, under all circumstances, all um, conditions. Um, level 2 is closer to the bottom than it is to the top. Just in Level 2, we have about $160 worth of autonomous driving content. That jumps to $630 in chip content alone um, in, in just the next level. So it is a substantial growth area for chip makers involved in the, in the car. Um, it's about eight to ten percent of the overall semiconductor industry right now and obviously units aren't growing, which is uh, much to the chagrin of the chip makers, but it has propensity for content growth even if units don't grow. Our broad takeaway, however, and we've been doing this for several years now, is that self-driving cars are a journey, not a destination, right? You have to look at the progress along the way. There is tremendous amount of technology that comes in from um, sensors to cameras to sensor fusion to intelligent logic that controls those sensors and processes the data from those sensors. And we progress to doing some of the things some of the time. And maybe that's more than good enough, right? Maybe we never go to robot taxis, but. Along the way, we get to a point where we get good enough at a great price. And, and the reason I bring that into uh, into specifics uh, is that, you know, the Boston Consulting Group um, surveyed um, uh, consumers of cars, and they said that 43% would pay more uh, for a self-driving car. But of the people who would pay more for a self-driving car, 62% said they would pay up to $5,000 more. Obviously, that is not yep. the ticket of a Tesla, right? <laughs> right. So the The question is, you're not going to get into a self-driving car. why? there's a there's a bridge to be crossed in terms of comfort level, in terms of skill level of the car. you want to be in control, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a question of pure costs, right? the 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 last part of it, I will say, and um is that, Um, there's multiple things that need to happen. It's just not the technology alone. It's just not the mapping features alone. It's not figuring out who pays for stuff when you ram into another car. Those kinds of basic insurance questions, for example. All of those things have to happen in order for you to get to the um, autonomous...
0: Robotic. All right, call me call me skeptical on this self driving car. I don't even drive an automatic transmission, manual transmission. Yeah, but for that's because you
2: think it's cool.
0: Well, it is cool and it's fun <laughs> and it's really driving. But all right, so when, when you talk to, I'm I'm going to ignore kind of the forecasts I hear coming out of the, uh, uh, you know, the Teslas of the world. The folks in Silicon Valley doing the
5: the real technology. What do they think the timeline is, it Look, I mean. Infineon just cut its projections in half for level three vehicles in 2025. They're creating new levels along the way, right? So we're we're cheating along the way. There's a new level now. It's called level two plus. Okay. Um, um, so we're we're and this this is this is going to happen more and more. And we've seen this in technology: 5G ready, Wi-Fi six ready. Uh, we we've seen and these baby steps, as much of a marketing gimmick as they might be. There are steps along the way, and you get a lot more value that is both economic as well as useful. It's not science in search of a, 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 a science solution in search of a problem. You get actual usable stuff along the way. And that's what we've always been saying uh, from two years ago is that it's a journey, not a destination.
2: Awesome. Really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us, Andre Navasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We talk a lot about the impact of D.C. on technology companies, whether it's regulation or taxes. So, for more, we want to talk about that with Andrew Silverman, Corporate Tax Government Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Andrew, uh, what are the taxes on big tech?
1: Well, uh, so these are uh, taxes that are popping up uh, all over the world, but the the one that uh, people have been talking about a lot, especially the president, is the French digital tax. And uh, what what's basically been happening is the EU has been trying to pass a digital tax for years, a decade and a half, and uh, it's basically sputtered out. And so, what's what's happened is that individual countries in Europe and, and other places, mm-hmm. Indonesia and places like that as well, um, is that they're passing uh, taxes that only apply in their country to these digital companies. And um, and so, you know, on the plus side, it's good that uh, these, you know. Um, uh, Apple and Amazon—they're not having to pay, you know, what the the Dutch uh, estimator was going to be—one to two uh, billion euros a year from an uh, uh, EU-wide tax, but uh, they have to pay these um, individual country taxes, and the the taxes don't necessarily mesh with one another, and they're at different rates, and they're on different types of income, and so these these uh, companies might have to pay, you know, double or triple taxes on the same income.
0: Well, I mean, to date, hasn't the argument been that? These tech companies aren't paying any taxes. are certainly well below statutory rates or even remotely close to that type of thing. So is this a kind of a catch-up on the part of some of these European countries? Well,
1: that's certainly the way that they feel about it. The U.S.'s uh, approach is that uh, these are U.S. companies. They should be taxed in the United States, and if we decide not to tax them on income earned in Europe, for example, that's our right, and they shouldn't be taxed in that in
0: Europe. And so what's the European response? What are they saying? Just because... Is because you're doing business here and you owe us some money? Yeah. Uh, well, so um, they've actually
1: specifically talked about what they call Gafa—Google, uh, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. It's, oh, okay. it's not as good as Fang. I don't think. Yeah. No. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I believe in the the proper way to pronounce it is with a slight sneer. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but uh, so the French uh, finance minister said that I'll make it very simple and very clear. I cannot accept to have Google, Amazon, or Facebook paying less taxes than my butcher bookshop, right? So okay. um, they, they blame these companies specifically for, like you said, um, not paying enough taxes uh, in France and Spain.
2: So okay. in terms of taxes and how much, like is a lot of money for these companies? Is it a big tax?
1: It's less than it would be if, uh, if it was an EUI tax. Uh, but we've estimated that um, the amount that Google and Facebook would have to pay Google would have to pay about $91 million this year. Um, Facebook would have to pay about $58 million this year just on the French tax.
0: The issue is, I think, for a lot of these big tech companies is they're, they're saying, hey, we don't want to do it. Co- Actually, I'm sure they don't want to pay taxes at all. But if we have to do it, we don't want to have to do it country by country and at a different rate and a different thing. What is How are you know, global companies taxed anyway? Well, it depends.
1: Every country has its own system. Uh, The United States, uh, after tax reform, has ostensibly moved into what's called a territorial tax system, which means that we only tax income that arises in the United States. But what we've sort of fused onto that system is uh, a worldwide tax system. And so even though you might not be taxed on income that isn't arising in the United States, we construe a lot of foreign income to be arising in the United States. And so they get taxed on foreign income anyway. So we have this sort of mixed system. But what the Europeans are moving towards is um, a system in which... Uh, companies are taxed on where their um, their profits arise from, and so it's actually creating this uh, the situation where the United States has a, a system in which uh, companies are taxed where they're uh, where they're formed, where their headquarters. Is and um, these two uh, theories are are coming up against each other. Uh, the OECD is actually proposing a lot of plans right now um, that would would tax based on you know where companies earn their money. And the U.S. has basically said no, that's that's not the way we do things. And uh, the Europeans are saying okay, we have tax sovereignty, we get to decide. And so companies are sort of stuck in the middle, right? The United States is saying, we're not going to give you a tax credit for this. And the Europeans are saying, Mm. we're going to tax you anyway. It doesn't matter how you feel, United States. We have
0: sovereignty. So how did these companies respond? Um, Like, for example, is tax inversion still a thing for a while there? Companies were moving their taxable Domicile to some country where they would get Ireland, tax. Man. Ireland, mm-hmm. there you go. Does that still happen?
1: Um, it, it slowed down a bit. Uh, it was a popular thing to do during the Obama administration, and um, actually, to to a great extent, the reason that it slowed down is because of of the Trump tax reform. The rates have gone down to twenty one percent of the corporate tax rates, and that means a lot of companies are saying, "You know, it's not really worthwhile to move anymore." But by the same token, companies can move for tax purposes overseas without actually moving any buildings or Mm -hmm. headquarters or employees. And so they can shift things of value to Europe uh, or wherever has a lower tax rate and pay a lower lower global tax rate. And so they don't need to move their headquarters anymore. They can do Mm -hmm. it constructively,
0: effectively.
2: Where should I move my own headquarters? Oh,
0: I don't know. You can go
1: anywhere.
2: Yeah, that's that's (laughs) something to really think about. All right, Andrew Silverman, thanks a lot. Corporate tax and government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence.
0: Thank you. Right now, let's turn to emerging markets. For more, let's bring in Damian our Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Emerging Market Credit Analyst. Damien, thanks so much for joining us. Just give us a sense broadly how emerging markets have performed year-to-date and kind of what's the outlook for EM going forward?
6: Yeah, yeah, so emerging market local currency debt is up 8.5% year-to-date, but what's most interesting is that 75% of that return has been driven by falling local yields. So, you know, mm-hmm. EM local debt, there's coupon income, which is carry, there's currency impact, but there's duration, which is falling yields. And so it's unprecedented that all 20 countries in the benchmark-eligible EM local currency bond index are posting duration gains year to date. I mean, that's really quite unprecedented and really speaks to the fact that, you know, monetary policy, you know, the dovish tilt by, you know, the U.S., by the Fed, by the ECB, is really kind of um, moving into the emerging market space. And so what we've done is we've gone deep dive into these local markets to see what the market, what the market implied, uh, you know, the local rate markets are implying insofar as rate expectations are going forward. And what we find is if you have the, I guess, the um, $2.8 trillion market for EM local currency debt, we took the six largest countries, excluding China, which is about $1.8 trillion of that debt, and we looked at their three-month expectations um, for rates, and what we found is that countries like Brazil, which is pricing in 75 bps of cuts through the end of the year, Mexico, which is priced for another 50 bips of cuts, Indonesia, which is pricing at least 25 bps of cuts through the end of the year, those are the big three that are going to drive continued duration gains through the end of this year, Paul. But, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the countries that have already cut, are now shifting back to neutral. So Malaysia, Thailand, a lot of the uh, Asian central banks, which have been cutting pretty aggressively this year, are no longer priced for additional cuts. And so what that leads us to believe is that duration gains aren't going to carry returns as much as they have so far this year
2: or you just need to be more selective on it like it's not going to be just broad base like you can still get it but you have to really pay attention to like what central banks can still have more room to cut
6: exactly because right now in Brazil if you look at the DI future strip which is how you would price rate expectations mm-hmm. locally in Brazil you've got a 100% probability of a 50-bit cut um, at the next meeting but they also have a meeting coming up in December and right now it's a 50% probability of an additional 50-bit cut there so you know that's the 75 bips of cuts that are priced in but you know it's kind of interesting you know different markets like in Malaysia you're looking at at the K-Libor strip in um, Indonesia. You're looking at Jaibor forward rates. In Thailand, because Thailand, it's really more of a currency implied forward market. You're looking at the six month Thai bot fixing rate, you know? So you're looking at all these different kind of um, markets, these different kind of um, indicators to kind of tease out what the market's really priced for today. And so, yeah, no, I mean, look, for me, it all fits kind of neatly with um, with the IMF bringing down its expectations for global right. growth uh, right. this year from 3.2 to 3%. And the fact that, you know, within there, what uh, the new IMF chief, uh, Kristalina Georgieva, is, is saying is that, you know, they don't have a lot of ammunition left, these central banks. And so they're going to have to rely more on Macroprudential tools and fiscal stimulus in order to carry them through the weak spots that you know we're kind of currently in in the global economy.
0: So, as you talk to institutional investors, um, how are they factoring in EM in the context of uh, this trade uncertainty? I'll put it on I'm going to go to the trade war route, but just trade uncertainty that seems to be just this overhang across the financial markets.
6: Yeah, you know, it's actually really interesting because you know you would think, and 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 believe me, the markets have 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 kind of flipped between. Um, Fed expectations or ECB expectations in trade as being the two primary exogenous drivers of returns. And I think we flip back now to rate expectations, because if you look at the the volatility surface and you look at what options are pricing in over the next, let's say, one, three months, etc., what you find is that October 30th, which is when Brexit and the Fed hit, you've got vols that have absolutely yeah. spiked that are higher than looking out you know further along the curve one uh, along the surface one and three months out so what it kind of tells me is that markets are very hyper focused on the near near term in terms of where is the Fed heading next? I mean, are they really going to cut in October? I mean, are they you know maybe going to you know pause and wait till December? Who knows? But that's really what is driving I think EM return expectations over the near near term. Of course, trade has an impact to all of that, right? And as we stand here with U.S. China trade, I think we're looking forward to um, you know a lot more data. You know, IP and retail sales we see coming out of China. You know, GDP is going to be weak, um, and so yeah, those are the kind of things that we're looking at. You know, to kind of gauge whether or not china is really going to try and uh, stimulate its own economy and you know the things that china is doing obviously they injected 200 billion yuan through the uh, medium uh, financing rate um, just this week. Mm-hmm. But we expect more triple R cuts through the end of the year. We expect more credit extension. We expect total social financing to continue to tick up because, quite frankly, they need to get their economy moving in the right direction again.
2: Damien, love it. Thank you so much. Damien Sassauer, Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist. Who talks faster, me or Damien?
6: Oh, Damien. <laughs> no. Okay, right? Absolutely,
2: when I but take that... heat on talking fast, I'm like, go talk to Damien, man. But he knows what he's talking <laughs> about. So
0: anyway, that's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence. Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries.
2: And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele.
0: And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Nyka.
2: And I'm Skip Bronson.